We've been all fixing lines all over we the place. Check the oh, we're up. We need to check the battery. It's live. Okay. Okay, Rush. Head of a man. Uh, first, top, beginning. I look upon my suffering, look upon my suffering and deliver me, for I have not forgotten your law. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decrees. Your compassion is great, O Lord. Preserve, preserve my life according to your laws. Many are the foes who persecute me, but I have not turned from your statutes. I look on the faith, faithless with loathing, for they do not obey your word. See how I love your precepts. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your love. All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. Good stuff. Okay, and we got started just on time. The computer must have glitched with the power outage or something, so we had to have Sergio do his wonder working, and he got it going, and we're on time. So, good. Fix that chair? Um, well, no, but it's okay. I'll just keep once in a while checking it. Okay, October 6th. Today, yes, today is October 6th. You have been... You have to be careful what you pray for. In 1871, D.L. Moody was a well-known evangelical leader in Chicago. Seven years before, at the age of just 27, he had founded the Illinois Street Church, which today is Moody Memorial Church. In the late 1860s, he served as president of the Chicago YMCA and had a central role in building the first YMCA building in America, Farewell Hall which had a seating capacity of 3,000. He preached on Sunday nights in Farewell Hall. I guess it's Farwell Hall. Anyway, since the attendance had outgrown the Illinois Street Church. At that time, Moody was struggling with what God was calling him to do. He knew that he had to decide between being a social religious organizer through the YMCA and being an evangelist. Deep down, Moody felt that God was calling him to a national evangelistic ministry but rejected the idea because his ego was tied up in his Chicago projects. His inner conflict began to diminish the power of his preaching. This became especially clear to two women in his church, Sarah Ann Cook and Miss Hoth, I, I can't pronounce this name anyway. Um, Cook, a recent immigrant from England and a free Methodist became convinced that Moody needed the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. Okay, well, Whatever. The women began making this a matter of earnest prayer. They sat in the front row and prayed whenever he preached. The women shared their concern with Moody and eventually set up a regular Friday afternoon prayer time with him. Finally, Moody's spiritual frustration was so great that on October 6, 1871, as they met for prayer, he rolled on the floor and tearfully asked God to baptize him with the Holy Spirit and fire. I wonder where that is in scripture. Can anybody find that for me? No. Um, the next Sunday night, October 8th, Farwell Hall was full of full as Moody preached on what then shall I do with Jesus, which is called the Christ. He closed his message by saying, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary and the cross and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. So now they're observing the Sabbath too. Hmm. Uh, following the sermon, his song leader Ira Sankey sang, Today the Savior calls, for refuge fly, the storm of justice falls, and death is nigh. Suddenly his voice was drowned out by the sound of fire engines rushing past the hall. 
Shouting could be heard in the streets and Moody hurriedly closed the service. Moody and Sankey left through the back door and saw flames reaching to the sky to the southwest. Upwind from the city's downtown, Moody rushed home to his family as the southwest wind reached almost hurricane force. It was the Great Chicago Fire. It lasted until the following Wednesday. The fire destroyed Moody's house, the Illinois Street Church, and Farwell Hall. Everything that held Moody to Chicago was in ashes. The only chain still binding him to Chicago was his own will. Weeks later, as he quietly walked down a busy street in New York City, that last chain snapped, and he surrendered his will to God. Moody went on to become the leading evangelist in the English-speaking world at the end of the 19th century. He traveled over one million miles and presented the gospel by voice and written word to more than 100 million people. On the 22nd anniversary of the Chicago fire, Moody spoke reflectively. I have never seen that congregation since, and I will never meet those people again until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you one lesson I learned that night, which I have never forgotten. And that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there and try to bring them to a decision on the spot, I have asked God many times to forgive me for telling people that night to take a week to think it over. When we pray, it is of utmost importance that we pray that God's will, not ours, be done. God desires that we conform our will to his. Moody learned this lesson the hard way. Remember to be careful what you ask of God because you just might get it. He asked for uh, Holy Spirit and fire. Well, he got fire. Uh, may your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven, Matthew 6, 10. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to uh, uh, pray to you, to ask you to bless this class and to ask you to uh, tend to the needs of the people and to uh, and we'll have some prayer requests to lift up to you in a moment, Lord, but uh, a little out of order. But uh, we uh, uh, do thank you that we can meet here and that we can get into your word and what a precious word it is. Help us to handle it properly and to uh, uh, seek your face in all things. Lord, you are so good to us. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we got a couple prayer requests here, and let me see. The first one is, uh, Stephen online is having surgery, maybe even right now. He told me it was Thursday evening he was going to have it, uh, for 95% torn ligament in his right shoulder. So we want to pray that that'll be successful because I cannot imagine what that would be like otherwise. It'd be like somebody maybe uh, blowing out the uh, uh, quad on their leg or something. <laughs> um, and then uh, Sarah, her husband, her daughter, and all of them have COVID and Sarah is also pregnant. So we want to keep them in prayer uh, for their health. And uh, so there you go with that. And I know I had a couple other prayer requests, but they must be on another... Uh, on another paper at home. So I apologize to the people that uh, asked me to pray for them, but the Lord knows who they are. People and in Fort Myers. Yes, definitely the people in Fort Myers. We want to keep them in prayer. People uh, keep bringing that up as I go around town. Uh, today I was going to several places and uh, they'd say how fortunate we are. And I say, you know, I can't feel that way when people 50 miles south of us will not have power for months. They have no home. You know, uh, over 100 have died. And so, uh, it's, it's a difficult thing to have to deal with, but um, uh, that's the way that life is, and that's what the Lord hands us. So uh, we just have to uh, keep the people in prayer. The nice thing is that we have some good weather here, which is very unusual for this time of year, 
and uh, so at least the workers that are down here aren't overheating and they're getting things done so there you go with that um, uh, uh, you know during the uh, before we go in, into the Bible um, during this commentary he mentioned that we'll meet here next Sabbath and I just want to clarify what that means Sabbath is Saturday that's all Sabbath is. That is the day that the Jews observe their day off. Okay, a Sabbath is a day of rest. It's not a day of other things. And uh, it is a Saturday. It is the um, seventh day of the week. Sunday is the first day of the week. And so a Sabbath by default is the seventh day of the week. To say I'm going to meet here next Sunday on a Sabbath is incorrect. But people will take and they've got different views on the Sabbath, and I'm not gonna give all of them, but one of them is that you have a Sabbath, and that you observe the Sabbath because that's a part of what God ordained, such as the Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists observe a Sabbath, and they're doing it in accordance with the law of Moses. Unfortunately, they're not doing everything in accordance with the law of Moses. They're picking and choosing their theology, and uh, it is a heretical cult. But uh, that's the uh, uh, Sabbath observance. Then you have the um, <coughs> Christian Sabbath. That is something that people have adopted into Christianity. And they say that we observe our Sabbath to the Lord on Sunday. Okay, that's co-opting something that does not belong to the church. There's nothing in scripture to justify that. And by meeting in church and turning on lights and setting fires in the church, I'm not talking about the church on fire. I'm talking about if you're having a, a what do you call it? A, Thing barbecue? Uh, no, the thing Shabbat that candle. up north, the thing up north that they uh, you heat your building with. We don't have them. Furnace, thank you. Furnace. We don't have them in Florida. It's a fun no. game. There you go. Okay, Flames. well, you're doing all of these things which are not authorized on a Sabbath. And so to say that we are observing a Christian Sabbath isn't observing anything. It's showing a lack of knowledge in Scripture. That's all it is. Um, the other one that uh, we want to highlight is the uh, a fulfilled Sabbath. Okay, Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. That is uh, recorded in Hebrews 4.3. Now we who believe do enter that rest. Okay, so it's done. Okay, that's the Sabbath that we observe. And it is not a day in the week. It is our life. We have entered God's rest. And so we are in our Sabbath all the time. We don't have to observe things that were mandated in the past because they have been fulfilled by Christ. The Sabbath was Exodus 16. It was given as a sign to the people of Israel. A sign points to something else. It's not its own thing, okay? The sign is Christ. He is our rest. He gives us rest. Come to you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest, okay? The fulfilled Sabbath is what we observe and we do it to the Lord all our life. Okay, it's not something that we just do on a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever day we pick and choose or that is mandated for us on a Saturday according to the Old Testament. Okay, just so you know. And there are other views on this, but those are the three predominant views. We are in our fulfilled Sabbath. We don't tell people that we're observing our Sabbath. You can do that if you want. I know a lot of people that do that, and that's fine if that's what they want to say, But and I don't correct them on that, but it is technically incorrect because the Sabbath is a Saturday. It is a day of rest and not of anything else. You're not supposed to be doing other things. And I don't know any Christians that would observe it the way that the Bible mandates. So there you go with that. Hebrews 4.3. What? Hebrews 4.3. 4, 3. Yeah, that's why I just cited. Now we who believe do enter that rest. That's exactly right. Hebrews 4 verse 3. And it's also all through. If you go to Hebrews, 
Hebrews 4.3 is a part of the explanation. It goes all the way through Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4. It just speaks about it all the way through there. But Hebrews 4.3 is the text verse, I would call it, for that particular concept. We who believe do enter that rest. Everything else around those verses before and after are pointing to that thought, okay? And I've talked about that in the past, and I might do it again. As a matter of fact, I did it just recently in the Joshua sermon. Um, I don't remember which one, chapter two maybe. I talked about the rest that we have entered, okay? It's, uh, and I'm glad you got that verse. Don't forget that verse. That's an important verse to remember is Hebrews 4, verse three. But it's just simply the verse which explains all of the other concept of the Sabbath. Paul speaks about that in Romans 14, verse, comes after five. this. Yes, 14, verse 5. It comes after this, and it comes before this. So you were right. Um, I'll read it to you and what it says. And uh, that was very good. Did you guess that? or Because I wasn't holding up five fingers. Uh, I, I guess. You I just guessed it. I give a number. Oh, you gave me a number, and you gave the right <laughs> number. Hebrews 4, 3, I was reading this morning. That's why I remember that. No, okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 14, 5 says, one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So much for Seventh-day Adventists, okay? He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And then he gets into foods as well. If you eat, blah, 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 he who eats to the Lord does it. To, okay, so the point is that whatever you do, you do it to the Lord. Okay, if I want to observe a day of worship to the Lord, then that's what I'm going to do. And if I don't want to, there's nothing that constrains me. It used to be very, very popular in America, especially for Baptist churches, to meet on Wednesday night, Saturday morning, I'm sorry, Sunday morning and Sunday night. That was the standard. And people were guilted into that. If you're not there those three times at church, then you were not a good Christian. That is contrary to what Paul says in Romans 14, 5, okay? Don't ever let anybody guilt you into church observance. You do what you want. It does say, don't forsake the gathering together of the brethren. That's from the book of Hebrews, and it's letting us know that we should be gathering and fellowshipping. But don't let anybody guilt you into anything. If you want to observe on Monday, that's fine. If you don't want to observe at all, I don't take any day off ever. I haven't taken a day off since um, September of 2020. It's the last time I had a day off, okay? I work every day. And even when I take half a day off, I still work from 3 o'clock until, we'll say, 9 or 10 or 11 before I meet somebody. That's eight-hour workday, okay? And then when I'm done meeting them, I always go home and I do another two hours of work before I go to bed. And that's just my schedule. And I don't feel guilty about that, and I'm not going to have anybody make me feel guilty about it. I'm in a comfortable rut. I like it. I love the Lord. I observe my days to the Lord, and that's what I feel is right. So don't let people guilt you into things or misdirect you with words that do not apply in this dispensation. Okay, I had to get that no, out. No, no, I, I was jumping the gun. Oh, okay. You went exactly where I was going. Oh, so. okay, good, good. I just didn't want to lose my train no, no, of thought. Thank you for Because once I, you know, I give two points of, and there's a third one, and I get off on it. I'll never remember what yeah, the third right. one is again. So, okay, I just wanted to say that because they, they brought it up. They, unfortunately, this is a nice commentary. They've got a lot of good history in there, but they their doctrine is somewhat lacking. Okay, a lot of people ask me for this, and I send them the information. I send them the link on Amazon. It's not an expensive book, and it's uplifting, but please remember to read your Bible. Okay, everything else is superfluous when it comes to scriptural knowledge. 
you read the Bible to get your scriptural knowledge. And if you want to study something in particular, hey, that's great. You might need commentaries and sermons and stuff from people over the years. And that's fine. That will help you with that. But make sure that what is said or read corresponds to this. This is where we get our doctrine and our theology from, okay? So having said that, we are now in the book of Colossians. Um, we're just getting started with it. We're actually in chapter 2, but we're moving right along, and it's chapter 2, verse 5 today. Start so, at the top. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My pur purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and unite in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may have, they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom we are hidden, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Verse 5, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Okay, this one says, For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. So, a little different, but same basic idea. Before I go on, there's one thing that I didn't do, and I meant to do this, and I get sidetracked with all these little things at the beginning of a class, is that we have two wonderful gentlemen that are still here from last Sunday. It's... um. Uh, Lee and Mike. They, if you're online, you know them by different names, but we'll just call them Lee and Mike, and they've been here working all week long, okay? They've been helping out with the, uh, the effort of the recovery from the hurricane, and so uh, I just want to welcome you guys, and thank you so much for making the effort. It means a great deal to all of us. Um, okay, so here we go. 2-5. Paul had just said to the Colossians, now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Building upon that, he says, for. He understands that they will have deceivers come in among them and attempt to lure them away from the truth which is found in Christ alone. As a note uh, of comfort to them, he next says, though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit. The question is, is Paul referring to his own spirit as if it, it is his heart that is with them or is he speaking of the Holy Spirit meaning a spiritual bond exists between the two the question is hotly debated but the wording he uses gives us a clue in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 he tells us something very similar so let me take you there and I'll read you what that says and while I'm taking you there I said at the beginning of the uh, uh, class while we were having that commentary read, I said, where in scripture does it say that we will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? Okay, John the Baptist said something like that about his baptism of repentance, and he said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay, and so um, we can take it that that means that Jesus is going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, which we do receive the Holy Spirit. The fire is obviously metaphor, and remember, it was in Acts chapter 2 that the tongues of fire came down, okay? That was a one-time event. That's not recorded anywhere else in Scripture where fire came down. It does say that the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers in Acts chapter 10. 
but uh, things need to be taken properly. And we should not expect people to suddenly start rolling around on the floor and uh, speaking in tongues and having fiery demonstrations come out of the roof. Okay, when we receive Jesus Christ, I want to make sure that I get this out of the way because I said it in the commentary and I didn't want to miss this. When we believe in Jesus Christ, it says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, when we believe, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are sealed with it at that moment, okay? And we don't need to go any further than that. Those are epistles, which means they are prescriptive in what they say, and we receive the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the future purchase of the redemption in uh, one, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, that's all we need. We don't need to have these outward demonstrations. We're going through the book of Acts right now. If you want to know what the book of Acts is detailing and what Acts chapter 2 is pointing to, I can tell you this right now. It ain't us, okay? Acts chapter 2, there were no Gentiles involved. It was a demonstration of the Spirit coming down on the believers at that time for the purpose of convincing Israel. When Peter spoke, he spoke to Israel. He spoke to Jews, okay, that were coming out of the uh, state of having crucified Jesus Christ, and he told them certain things they needed to do, which we don't need to do because we did not crucify Jesus Christ and reject him, okay? Now, we were there with our sins crucifying Jesus Christ. I don't want to deny that, but we are not the people that were called to receive the Messiah, okay? That is clearly uh, stated in Jeremiah 31, 31. Okay, the house of Israel, the house of Judah. The Gentiles are included in the covenant, but the covenant is made with them. Okay, please understand these things. Okay, that's why I said that and I wanted to clarify it just so that people know what I was referring to. But right now we're going to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and in verse 3, Paul says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this deed. So there you go. You've got a clue as to what Paul is saying in this verse now. In those words of 1 Corinthians 5, he uses the term body. There he was making an assertion that he is physically absent, but if he was there in person, he would have made the same rendering as he had while absent. In this passage, he says flesh. The word is normally given as a contrast to that which is spiritual, not physical. To walk in the flesh is to walk in a carnal manner. To walk in the spirit is to walk in step with the Lord. Therefore, Paul is making a spiritual connection to those at Colossae, which goes beyond as if I were there with you in the body. Rather, it is saying, I am with you in the influence of the spirit. This then is revealed in the words rejoicing to see. Okay, I hope you understand that, is that he felt a spiritual connection with them rejoicing in the spirit because of the term he used, flesh. Okay, flesh. And you know what? It does not mean that if you are a person that is walking in the flesh that you are not a saved Christian. There are lots of saved Christians in the world that walk in the flesh. They've, uh, one, 2 Peter 1, 9 actually says that some people get so far away from the Lord that they have forgotten that they were cleansed from their past sins. He doesn't say they've lost their salvation. It means that they're walking in the flesh. They have completely fallen away from any inkling of having been saved, and yet they are just as saved as they can be. And he tells you the steps to avoid that in 2 Peter 1, verses 2, all the way through 8. It's a very clear process, and if you don't follow that process, you are bound to end up walking in the flesh. Okay, But 
For Paul now, he says, rejoicing to see. The spiritual connection is realized in that he is filled with joy in the Spirit, which is then a result of your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. That's Paul's words. The word order is an ancient military term which describes how a military troop is ordered, going in descending rank. Do you know anything about that, sir? A little bit. He knows a little bit about it. He was at the top of this descending rank. He was out there in the field. He would have been, uh, what would you call it, uh, a person when you were out there with people during an exercise? Would you have been like a battalion commander? or What, what position would you have? I mean, if you were out there with your rank. Brigade commander. So he's in the top of this brigade, and it goes down to all the little peons below him. There's an order. There's a set order, okay? And that soldiers. soldiers. He calls them soldiers. Listen, I've been reading about the soldiers in the past few months, and I got to tell you, they are not the corps that you served with, or what I say corps. Things have changed very quickly. It's sad. Anyway, I'll use the term peons for today's military, okay? Uh, and I know there are still good people in the military. I understand that, but the, the numbers are diminishing very quickly. I, I don't know how we're going to recover from this. We probably won't, but that's probably meant to be. Anyway, uh, it describes how a military troop is ordered going in descending rank. It thus signifies a detailed ordering instead of a general accounting of military troops. General accounting says, you know, this is our brigade, and we have how many in a brigade? 20,000 people or 1,500 or... 2,500 people, okay? It's not that general accounting of them. It is the order of them, okay? The word steadfastness is found only here in the New Testament, and it continues the military metaphor. Thus, the steadfastness of your faith in Christ gives the sense of the faith being a military host which is closely drawn together. It is as if they form a stronghold against the deceivers who would attempt to come in among them and confuse them. It is reflective of the words of the 18th Psalm. Let me find that for you here. Psalm 18, and it's verse 2. If I can ever get there. 18, there's 7. Thank you. 18 verse, I'll start with verse 1. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold. So there you go with that. That's kind of in accord with what Paul is saying right there. Those in Colossae were a source of joy to Paul because he knew that they were standing on the truth of the Lord and allowing him to be their true leader as well. They had ordered their troops and they had drawn together closely in him. Thus, he was their stronghold. Life application, no man is an island. There is strength in numbers, and from the words of Paul to the Colossians, we can see the importance of aligning ourselves with other believers so that we can unite in the Lord and stand against the false deceivers who come against us. This is a wise thing to do, and it is what the Bible would direct us to do. As I said, no man is an island. We think we can handle it all on our own, and that is not the case. Okay, and I'm finding out it's more not the case with every day that I get older. You know, I used to think that I could hold up the whole world, and now I can't hold up my own head sometimes. So, um, but in especially in spiritual matters, we need to be very, very careful to not try to do it alone and to uh, check with others on things, to ask others to pray for us, ask others to lift us up and to build us. And you know, when I don't know something from the Hebrew, 
and I don't think I'm getting a, uh, a proper answer from the commentaries I read, I always email Sergio. And I say, hey, can we talk about this for a while? And uh, well, you know, he's like, I don't know. So, uh, but that's, you know, that's what I do because you, you have to have a place where you can go in order to uh, somebody you can confide in, somebody you can trust in, and it goes with all matters. Every matter in our life, there's got to be something that uh, we need to uh, be attentive to. Um, I'm going to stop. I meant to ask you this, and I'm going to forget if I don't right now. Did your house survive okay? Good. Okay. How about the other house the uh, you, where Steve is at? That's all okay? Good. Okay. Because it was an east wind. We didn't have any problem. You know, we're very blessed. I got to tell you what. But once again, saying the word blessed means somebody else wasn't, and I, I hate to even think that. You know, it's just... Uh, time and chance happened to people, and uh, the Lord directed it the way he did, and uh, we have to just be thankful for what we still have, but at the same time, we just need to keep the people down there in prayer. Um, okay, uh, we're in verse 2-6. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Okay, very short and to the point. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Okay, which is probably a more literal rendering with the Greek. Okay, Paul now states for the consideration of those at Colossae, and thus us, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. The Greek literally reads, the Christ Jesus the Lord. This is stated based on everything he has said about Christ Jesus to this point. All of the marvelous detail concerning him in chapter 1, and then the note in verse 2-3 that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were intended to demonstrate what they had originally believed, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, meaning Jehovah of the Old Testament. As he is, then he is God. Okay, I've got somebody right now that is adamant that Jesus is the Father. Okay, that's a heresy known as patropassionism. But this person is absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Father. Okay, I'd like to ask you all a question. Is the Holy Spirit the Father? No. Okay. It, it, things either make sense or they don't. Okay. If Jesus is the Father, that means that the Holy Spirit is the Father too. Okay. And they're very clearly defined in Scripture, Old Testament and New, that they are not. Okay. So when we're... What's that? I, I understand. I just, people hear something, they go with it, especially because there's a very anti-Catholic bias in the world. And it's assumed that the Trinity was a Catholic invention, okay? And so because of that, anything that's Catholic gets immediately thrown out. And that's a very poor way of handling one's theology, just because uh, something, uh, that's what's known as a source fallacy. Right. Yeah, read your Bible, learn your Bible, don't put in all these other things, don't worry about where something comes from. Does this match what Scripture says? Okay, and so you want to keep those things in mind. And what we're talking about here is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the Father. Okay, there is a oneness in the Son and the Father, and there's a oneness in the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus even says, the helper will not come unless I leave, etc. Okay, so obviously there is a distinction, even though there's a oneness. Okay, and so we need to be very careful about these things. But what is being presented right now in this verse is one of those things that shows us that the focus is on Jesus. It's not on God the Father at this point. It's not on the Holy Spirit at this point. And yet at times, it will, the focus will be on the Holy Spirit. Then at times, it will be on God the Father or on the Godhead. Okay, and so we need to be very careful when we read the Bible not to 
take these source fallacies and say, well, that's a Catholic invention, so I'm going to insert, okay, that's called eisegesis, inserting into the text what I want it to say. What you do is called exegesis, ek meaning out from. You want to get your, your study and your uh, draw the information out of the Bible. You cannot, you cannot get Jesus is the Father out of the Bible. It is not possible, okay, because it is not what the Bible teaches. So please remember these type of things. If people bring you these things, and I've come to the point with uh, this type of uh, discourse that after the second time, I do what Paul says. He says, tell them once, tell them twice, and then have nothing to do with them. I'm not going to talk about that subject with that person anymore because I've given them the information. They can do whatever they want with it. I'm not their mother, and I'm not their father. Okay, but you need to not get yourself pulled in by people with these type of agendas. Right now, the focus is on Jesus Christ, who is the Son of the Father. Now, I'll read this again so you can take it from that perspective. Paul now states, for the consideration of those at Colossae, and thus us, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, and as I said, the Greek reads, the Christ Jesus the Lord. It is stated on, based on everything he has said about Christ Jesus to this point, okay? All of the marvelous detail concerning him, Jesus, in chapter 1, and then the note in verse 2, 3, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge were intended to demonstrate what they had originally believed, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, Jehovah of the Old Testament. But even in the Old Testament, when you see the divine name, it is being used at different times of different entities. When three men walked up to Abraham, one of them was addressed as what? The Lord, Jehovah, okay? A physical, tangible person standing right there, okay? And so obviously, if he is there and if he is the Father, then that means that the Father has come down. And if the Father has come down, then the Father suffered. Patripassionism, the passion of the Father, and that is a heresy. Does everybody see the logical thinking there? The Father cannot suffer. The Father is God's spirit, and the spirit cannot suffer. God does not get happy. God does not get sad. God does not get, you know, from his perspective, angry. We move in relation to him, and his anger arises, okay? But it's not a change in God. It is a change in us in relation to him, okay? If there is a change in God, then it is not the God of the Bible because change occurs within the stream of time, okay? I don't care how quickly it happens. It's happening within a time. God created time, okay? These things are really, really important to consider because when you get off on these bad tangents, everything else in your theology, everything will be tainted. It has to say at least a dozen times that no one can see the Father Absolutely. or they will die. And then... There's Jesus. There's Jesus. So, and so it's like but you could lies. you could argue with that that Jesus is the uh, the human part of the God Man because he is the God Man. Right. But even then, there's more to it involved than that. Okay, it, it, like I said, if Jesus came down with Abraham, it, then that means, and he is Jehovah, which is clearly presented here. Mm-hmm. Then that means that the Father will suffer. That is a terrible thing to find yourself in because all of a sudden, everything about the nature of God, everything about the nature of God goes askew. Isn't that also denying Jesus? 
Well, no, but it is uh, denying the correct Jesus. Correct. That's okay, it, yeah. and that's why it's a heresy. It is denying. It would be what uh, Paul says as anathema in Galatians one six through eight. Right. Anyway, um, can, I, can I ask something? Sure. Right. angry, um, but Jesus had these feelings. Yes, and th so here's what you want to do when you think of Jesus. Here's what you want to do. Can God learn anything? No. Can Jesus learn? Yes. It says that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Okay, can God cry? No. no. Can Jesus cry? So what we're dealing with is the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. And so always make sure that there's a distinction between the two in your mind. Okay, as long as that distinction exists in your mind, then you're understanding that God has united with Christ in a certain way, but it's not God the Father. Okay, it is the second member of the Godhead. Okay, yes, because if it was God the Father, then you have the problem, which I explained from Abraham in Genesis 18. But every question you ask about Jesus, you're always going, uh, I'll give you a, a scary one though. Okay, you've got Jesus can he learn, can he cry, can he get angry? Can God get angry? No, because that's occurring in time. Okay, you've got all these different things. Well, here's a question for you. Can Jesus sin? He was tempted. Could he, he sin? He could sin. Well, he could sin. Yes. But he wouldn't. Okay, th like this, is, this is a giant argument. This is, this is known as impeccability. Was Christ impeccable? Okay, that's the one question that you really want to consider. Out of all of the nature of Jesus Christ, out of every question, you're always going to have two answers. But the, the question of could Jesus, could God sin? Obviously, no. Could Jesus the human sin? And my, my answer would be what yours and yours would be is it's possible that he could, he just didn't. Okay, but, perfect. but well, I understand that, but you've just said something. He's perfect. Okay. He is. Okay. So could Jesus sin? And now I'm not going to answer that other than to say that he could have. I'm sorry. If he could have, he did not. Okay. I don't know the answer to that question. I can tell you that that is one thing that I have thought about for years. And I've read every commentary that you can possibly imagine on it. And it is something that you will look at it and you'll come to this conclusion. Then you'll say, now, wait a minute, because was the test fair then? He was tested in all ways and yet without sin, etc. Okay, so you have to take everything into consideration. And in the end, I do not want to stand before the Lord and say, yes, Jesus could have sinned, but he didn't. So I would say that he didn't. That's all that matters to Charlie Garrett. Right. Jesus Christ, but you add something. That would be inherited sin, not committed sin. Okay, Jesus inherited no sin. His life in the Gospels is recorded to show that not only did he not inherit sin, he also did not sin. And there's a difference between the two, okay? Because Adam did not inherit sin, but he did sin, okay? And so the question comes back again, could Jesus sin? Was he impeccable or was he not? Technically, he could have because he became sin for us. It means he couldn't take the punishment of sin. Yes, but that, but that is an imputation of sin. Yeah. That is the, the picture from the Old Testament. So the he took on commit, our sin. Could, what? Commit, could he commit sin? But could he commit sin? He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yeah. But that was an imputation of our sin on him. 
okay? Once again, the question comes down to the word, was he impeccable or not? Could he not sin in his being? And that's the question that I, I do not want to be wrong on answering that. Well, what and, Peter 22 says that he committed no sin. That's right, and that's all that we need to know. If it said that, then he, he had could have. Well, you, Otherwise, why wouldn't well, he right. Does it mean that? Not well. 100%. There you go, see? <laughs> because you're going to give your argument, and then you have to think of the second side of it and consider it. Just because Peter said that does not mean that he could have. It just means that he did. Does this okay? fall into one of these things where can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? It's well, like, I, know, no, like because that's an illogical like, argument. Okay, well, no, 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 no. That, that is an illogical that argument. That one is a false It's argument. a false dilemma. I, I okay. get it. This is not a false dilemma. This is not a false dilemma. This is something that has an answer, but I cannot give a proper answer to it. Mm -hmm. And every commentary that I've read on, and do your own studies on it, on impeccability. Was Jesus Christ impeccable and incapable of sinning, or could he have sinned and he just did not have sin? Have you thought it through about to think, like, if you could have, then is there going to be any theological issue? Yes, I've issue? thought this through for both, 20 years. I just, I, I, yes, and I have not come to a resolution because every time I think, oh, then there's another, it, it's a very hard, it's like the Trinity. You know how those, you, you once told us the uh, God is, God is all those things. Right. Uh, like, the doctors, they, they're logical. Right. Uh, what do you call them? Um, the syllogisms. Yes. This, this, therefore so this. There's something could be a syllogism like this. Why don't you Jesus. sit down and do one? Okay. <laughs> I, I will leave that up to you to give me a, 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 a absolute proof syllogism. And you might need to do 20 or 30 of them. Yeah. I just have not been able to do it. Okay. And so I, I'm not going to give you an answer and say, because I just don't know. But it's one of those things that people will debate. And sure. you get people on one side or the other, and they're adamant. And it's so think it through. You do some syllogisms. I will continue. Every time it comes to mind, which isn't that often, but it came to mind just now, and it's something that I'll go home tonight and I'll lie in bed and it will be going through my head all night long. Okay. I'll sleep tonight. <laughs> uh, and probably that's true because once I get thinking about the impeccability of Christ, I, I really would like to have an answer. But I know, one thing I know is that he did not sin and that someday I will know the answer to that question. Yeah. I know those two things. So I'm satisfied with well, that. But we know he didn't. So I had just said that. I know. So it's like, okay, great. He's, no, he's, it, but it does matter. Well, I okay. It I get does what you're matter. But, okay, here's the thing. Okay, okay. He he could have or he could not have, but either way, he did. He's perfect, and that's what we needed to like do it. So that's like, right. So do I? But that doesn't. Do I admire him as that doesn't the answer the question though. That doesn't answer the question, and the question is something that needs an answer. I think this is in the rock. Okay, no, we got to go on. Yes. You always said that Adam had to have sinned. Like it would be impossible for man not to sin some point it, it was necessary for Adam to sin okay. it wasn't it, it wasn't that it was impossible that for him not to sin okay. it was that it was necessary that he did sin okay. because without that he would not have had the knowledge of good and evil he could have been obedient to the father he wasn't okay, okay so that that that's a little bit different yeah it's okay like the opposite yeah wording okay. needs to be very precise and things like that but we, we have to go on with this but everybody out there can think about it please don't send me a long thing on it I've read every commentary on the planet on that issue you, know, you and brought this up I know I did. I know I did. I'm but, writing you an email right now. But. Okay, yes, okay. Anyway, I, I have read the commentaries, and I have not come down firmly on other. The only two things I know is that he did not sin, and someday I will know the answer to this question. That's yes. all that I need right now, but I Praise will think about it. Okay, yes, best day of my life. 
Uh, okay, this is what they had received. Okay, Jesus, they had received him as Lord, Jehovah of the Old Testament. This is what they had received. He then re-explains this to them by saying, Christ Jesus, the Lord. Unfortunately, this article is missing in the translation of almost all versions in this verse. The ISV and the Weymouth correctly inserted it. So then, just as you have received the Messiah, Jesus, the Lord, continue to live dependent on him. That's the ISV version. As you can see, the article points out Christ Jesus in his full style and title as the person whom the Colossians had received. It's an important point and received as the Lord. Okay? It's a very important point, and that's the pulpit commentary that said the article points out Christ Jesus in his full style and title as the person whom the Colossians had received and received as the Lord. Pulpit commentary. This then is highlighting the Lordship of Christ Jesus, not his Messiahship. The term Christ in Greek is the same in meaning as Messiah. They both mean the same thing. Hebrew is Messiah, Greek is um, Christ, and what do they mean in English? Anointed, the anointed one, Messiah, okay? And the reason why is the word comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which, uh, is that correct? Where you have oil and it's anointed on their head. Some people say it was poured, some people say it was smeared. Either way, he is the anointed. A king would be anointed as uh, Saul was, okay, or David was. Okay, a king would be anointed uh, like Cyrus was. He was called the Messiah in Isaiah of the Jews. He was the savior of the Jews as a type of Christ to come. Okay, but there is one Messiah that is being pointed to all the way through scripture. Okay, it means the anointed. Uh, and what did he say when he stood up there and read the uh, 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 Isaiah 60, whatever, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. Yeah, is upon me. That's right, okay? And that's what he was referring to. I am the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. That's found in Luke and he's citing Isaiah, okay? Anyway, um, <clears throat> this is then highlighting the Lordship of Christ Jesus, not his Messiahship. The term Christ in Greek is the same as Messiah in Hebrew. The question of his Messiahship is resolved by the use of the title, but what does that mean? It means that he is Jehovah. He is God. Having said that, if the Christ Jesus is not the Lord, then he would be a false Messiah. Everybody see that? The logical, there are many supposed Messiahs, but there is one who is the Lord. Therefore, though the stress is on Jesus being the Lord in this verse, being the Messiah, necessarily means that it is speaking of the Lord. You can't have one without the other and it being the person that scripture is pointing to, in other words. The Lord in the Old Testament says, I will redeem Israel. I am their savior. They have no other. My glory I will not give to another. Again and again and again, Jehovah proclaims something about him that applies only to him. It is 100% exclusive. And all of a sudden, these titles in the New Testament are given to Jesus. I, he is the Savior. We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. All these things that were solely reserved for Jehovah in the Old Testament suddenly are called by or designated as being upon Jesus in the New Testament. Thus, he must be the Lord. He is the Messiah and he is the Lord. 
okay? This is what Paul is so carefully and meticulously telling his audience. With that in mind, he then says, so walk in him. This is a note of care, caution, and confidence. They had received Christ properly. They had been re-advised of who he is with Paul's careful explanation of the person, and thus he asked them to continue to live out their life with this knowledge and not swaying from it. They were not to be seduced by either the Judaizers who wanted them back under the law, which was fulfilled by Christ, nor were they to be duped into believing in a false Christ who is not the Lord by the Gnostics or other Greek philosophers. Okay, this is the importance of what Paul is saying. We've got this Gnostic thing that is arising in the world. Okay, and gnosis, gnosis meaning I have the no, secret knowledge. knowledge. Yes, and I want you to be aware of that. And at the same time, what was the other thing I saw? Um, the Greek philosophers, okay? And Paul speaks about the philosophers elsewhere, and he does not diminish the value of learning philosophy, okay? In fact, he cites Greek philosophers in his writings. When he's in the book of Acts and he goes to the, uh, uh, what do you call it? it, begins with the A, the uh, Agora, Agora. yeah. He goes there and he speaks to them in Acts chapter 17 and he cites several Greek philosophers. He cites um, uh, Euripides and he cites, um, oh, I can't remember, I used to know him by the top of my head. And then in the book of Titus he cites one as well, Aratus, okay? And so he cites these people and so he has a knowledge of them, and when he says something, he is saying it to make a point, okay? But anyway, um, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, just because he says these Greek philosophers are they're speaking all this philosophy that doesn't matter, doesn't mean not to learn it, okay? You can have a knowledge of something and just not apply it, you know, in an inappropriate way in the Bible, okay? Some people get so myopic in their view of things that they say, well, all I need is the Bible, and I don't need anything else but then they won't read people's commentaries on the Bible that know things from the Bible that they don't know, okay? Because the Lord will never reveal to them this particular thing in the Bible, okay? And so it's good to read other people's commentaries. It's good to study these things, but make sure what they say corresponds with the Bible, okay? Anyway, as I said in the, the previous verse, no man is an island. You're not going to get all that you will ever get out of the Bible. Other people, will, the Lord is giving them things that you can learn from them, and he's not going to let you learn on your own. He wants you to be a part of something beyond yourself, okay? So, anyway, um, the term walk is used to indicate a manner of life. If one follows a false Christ, that person will have an aberrant walk. But in knowing the true Christ, who is the Lord, one will be careful to walk in accord with his expectations. Okay, that's what we want to do. We want to keep in step with the Lord, walk with the Lord. Paul uses these same terms again and again and again. Stand, therefore, walk. You know, he, he's always using these metaphors so that you can think through what your life and action should be like. We should be walking with the Lord. We should stand firm on the Lord. We should stand on the word and so on. Okay, so think about those type of things that Paul gives and the way he says them, and it'll help you to more properly unpackage what he's saying. Because he's very consistent when he uses these things. He uses the word stumble in a different way than he does fall, okay? When you stumble, it doesn't mean you fell. When you fell, it means something entirely different. So think about those things, okay? Now, what does he say? I'll take you there so you can see the one I'm thinking of. 
and this is an important thing that will help you with reading other parts of Paul. Um, <clears throat> let's see here. Where does he say it? He says it. Um, he says it's either a nine, ten, or eleven of Romans. He says, "Have they stumbled so that they have fallen?" And he says, "By no means." And I've got to find this if I can. Um, he says, uh, stumble, I just saw it. For they stumbled as it is written at the stumbling stone. And uh, he goes on and he, he uses the word stumble again. And then he uses the word fall. And he says that they stumbled, but they did not fall. And there's a difference in the theology there. I'm not finding it and I'm not going to spend all day looking for it. Um, if you find Nine. it on, what? Nine. Nine what? Uh, the end, 30. 9.30, okay. Um, I think that's what I just read, wasn't it? 31. For they stumbled at what is written, as it is written, a stumbling stone. Well, he says somewhere, have they stumbled so that they would fall? And maybe I'm, maybe it's not even a 9, 10, or 11, but it's, he asked the question about Israel in there. Using the word stumble, he says, have they stumbled any, to the point where they have fallen? And he says, no. Anyway, um, uh, if somebody finds that great, let me know. If not, we'll just go on with the commentary. Okay, life application. <clears throat> the Christ Jesus is the Lord. Do you believe this? If so, you were in the sweet spot and on the heavenly highway. If not, you have believed in a false Christ and you are on the road to the lake of fire. To walk in the Christ Jesus, who is the Lord, will keep you from an eternal swim with any false Christ who is not the Lord. Do you find it? 11, 11. Well, why couldn't I have just remembered the numbers? And that would have made my life so much easier. 11, 11. Let's go there and see what it says here. Um, okay, 11, 11, 19, 18. I say then, yes, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. You know, if people would just understand what the terms stumble and fall mean, and then read this and say, well, he's speaking about Israel. He's not speaking about the church, okay? But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their, riches, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Okay, they stumbled, but not to a complete fall, but they had a fall. And because of that, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then he goes on and he says, where does he say it? Okay, I'm not gonna get into it because you can go back and watch the Romans commentary. But he talks about the, uh, the life from death. When they are reconciled, what does that mean? But life from death. And that could very well be a picture of the rapture. You know, at the time when we're taken out of here, Israel will realize what's going on. And, you know, I don't want to get into that right now. Go back and watch the Roman commentaries. But um, there you go. Life application. I read that. And so we are in 2-7. We are. Yes. something about walk in him? Okay. Like I always look at these things as an action. We have to do an action, but is it like a state of... It's a state. To walk in Paul's terminology is your conduct of life, okay? So it's an action, but it's your conduct. My walk is with the Lord. That's my, my, the state of my life, my conduct, okay? And so when you see the word walk, it is how you present yourself. And it doesn't mean you're physically walking, in other words. Okay, when he says stand fast on the Lord, he's not saying that, you know. No, I mean, is it like behavior and action, what kind of, what I am showing in front of others, or is it my understanding of 
Well, I think you're. It, it, it's more a demonstration of what you know, because you can have knowledge and not follow through with that knowledge. And what he is asking you to do is to take the knowledge that he's giving you and follow through with it in your conduct of life. Okay, does that get it? Yeah. Okay. All right, two seven. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanks, thankfulness. Okay, this one's a little different. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So it's just a little different, but mm -hmm. there you go. Okay, I in the, the what? I almost said Thanksgiving. Th yeah, I know. I, I thought, well, that's, that's the same thing as this. Yeah. In the previous verse, Paul said that we are to walk in Christ. Now he changes the metaphor from walking to being rooted. In other words, you're grounded in what you're doing. The idea of being rooted is that of a tree's roots, which bury deep in the soil. They hold the tree firm, but even more, they draw up the nutrients and water with which the tree may live. This is comparable to our own position in Christ. It is through him that we may draw up all the riches of what God offers to his redeemed. In this state, we can then be built up in him. So we're rooted and we're being built up in him, okay? If you're not rooted in the word, if you're not rooted in Christ, then you can't draw the nutrients out of the word and you can't be built up. Everybody see that? I mean, that's how it, it needs to be presented to your thinking, okay? Um, what was I just going to say about that? Went right out my ear. Okay, um, there is a change in the tense of the verbs here. The word rooted is a perfect participle. In other words, be rooted. It is a complete action where he is directing, where he is directing for us. The word translated as built up is a present participle. In this, it means something more like being built up. If we are rooted, we can then progress in him in the state of being built up in him. Hello, can we help you, sir? Oh, boy. Um, you know what? We've got way too many people here, so I want you to take that in back, please, and then take a whole bunch and take it home, okay? There's way too much for the people here. Go in back, get a whole bunch, put it on a plate, and take your bride home and have dinner. I know, or you can save it for tomorrow, okay? What? What? Yeah, that. There's that's too much for us. I'm trying to tell you to take a couple pieces home. Oh. Yeah, oh. that's my son not getting what I'm trying to tell him. Take it in back, put it on the table, <laughs> and take some home. That's all I'm trying to tell you. Take the small box with you. I left my car way down there. Okay, that's fine. I'm glad you did that. You got some exercise. He's gonna get more. Okay, we 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 got to get back into this because that was very confusing. He did not catch him what I was trying you to tell him. First. Uh, whatever. If he didn't understand, it's. Are you yeah, going to yeah. take some of that? No, I have to go. Okay, go on. Go away. Don't come back. All right. Take care, Thor. He's been. That kid has been ignoring me for 35 years. Love you, Thor. Thank you. Okay. Uh, we have pizza tonight. I'm going to stop right there because um, I need to do this. I always forget to say this to thank people. Uh, we had Melissa P. She sent us some money for the pizza, and I because I expected a lot more people. Half of them didn't come tonight. Um, shame on them. But uh, I bought extra, and so um, Wade out in Washington uh, sent us money for pizza too. So Melissa and Wade bought your pizza for you tonight. 
and pizza for a lot of other people. You're all going to take pieces home. Everybody takes some home. Okay, we got to go back now. Um, the words, rather than saying upon him, which might be expected, show that Christ is the sphere in which we are being built up, not merely the grounding of something else. I'll read that again, okay? The word translated as built up is a present participle. In this, it means something more like being built up. If we are rooted, we can then progress in that state of being built up in him. The words, rather than saying upon him, it says in him, which might be expected, show that Christ is the sphere in which we are being built up, not merely the grounding of something else. We are being built up in him, okay, in Christ. After this, he next notes, and be established in the faith. Again, it is a present participle, which gives the sense of being established. If we are rooted in Christ, our faith will be established as we continue our walk in him. In these words, it needs to be remembered why Paul is saying this. He is attacking Gnostic heretics who believed that knowledge was the highest attainment of the elite, normally possessed by only a few. The common and unenlightened merely possessed faith. Okay, you got faith. That's fine. We have knowledge. We have the secret knowledge. And so we're better than you. However, Paul shows that this is just the opposite. We are rooted in knowledge, and this leads to continued establishment of faith. It is faith which is pleasing to God. Everybody got that? We're rooted in knowledge. That's not the highest attainment. It's the basis for everything else. I can know that Jesus is Lord and not have faith in Jesus as Lord, and I won't be saved. Just because somebody has a head knowledge does not mean that he is saved. How many people have said for years, I grew up in church. I knew that Jesus was Lord. I've known that my whole life, and yet I never had faith in him. I've heard that, I can't tell you how many times. You go to church and you hear about Jesus and you miss the one thing that's important. I need to have faith in what he did. He died for my sins. I believe that. Just because you believe that Jesus is this guy doesn't mean that you're saved, okay? So the knowledge is not the highest attainment. It is the grounding of what is the highest attainment, which is our faith. That is what leads us to salvation, not the knowledge, okay? Once again, I'll read that. The common and unenlightened merely possess the faith. However, Paul shows it is just the opposite. We are rooted in knowledge, and this leads to continued establishment of faith. It is faith which is pleasing to God, and that is it. All your knowledge in the world, these people sit in these seminaries, and they speak all of these things, and they're so smart, that doesn't impress God at all. He knows all of that already. He knows everything that they know times infinity, okay? What he wants is you to believe in him. He wants you to accept his word without tearing it apart and saying, well, this is, you know, this was written by a Deuteronomist, and this was written by a Jehovahist, and this was written by a priest, and this was added later after the Babylonian exile, and all that nonsense that these people think will lead them to a, a superior knowledge over everybody else. That's not wisdom, that's stupidity, okay? God has given us his word. If this is his word, then it is a word that is reliable, and it's not something that was penned by a bunch of people over different centuries, okay? And we can tell just by studying it and knowing it that it is a unified whole. The chiasms within it show you that all of these verses, every single one of them, belong to the same author, okay? And they say, yeah, this one, this line right here was added later by a priest, and this one was added by a Deuteronomist, and these seven here were all from the Jehovah's people. That's impossible. 
There would be no chiasm if that was the case. So the word of God is self-validating. It is 100% self-validating. All right. Okay. So it is faith which is pleasing to God. Understanding this, he says, as you have been taught. In other words, hold fast to what you have received. And don't be duped by charlatans or led astray by heretics, which is exactly what I've been trying to tell this person that keeps telling me Jesus is the Father. You're being duped by a person. I, I, I won't get into all of the, the details of why this individual believes this, but it's just so unsound. And it's, once again, when you talk to a Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've done that, you know it's like talking to a blank wall. You can bang your head against the wall all day long and you're getting nowhere with them because they have a presupposition and it doesn't matter how clear the Bible is that Jesus is God, they are not going to believe it. You can, you know, people often say, I've heard this many times, that, that if God would just give us a sign, if they just write it in the sky, then I'd believe. No, they wouldn't. Yeah, well, yeah, he did in one way, but they wouldn't believe even if he... What did Jesus say about the uh, the parable of Lazarus, you know? If somebody just came back from the grave, we would believe. No, they wouldn't. People are not going to believe because they don't want God in their lives or they want a false God that they have created in their own mind or that somebody has put in there that they liked. I like what that person says about this and it makes me feel comfortable and I feel secure. I feel closer to God because you know, of how I'm presenting him. Listen, I feel close enough to God anyway because of what he did with Jesus, okay? I don't need to have all of these uh, incorrect ideas about him. God sent his son to die for me. I put my faith in his son, and I can't believe that he would do that. I can't believe that he would do that for me or for the people of the world. I, what more do we need? You tell me, because I can't, I can't think of anything more humbling than the thought that God would do this for us. Anyway, understanding this, he says, as you have been taught. In other words, hold fast to what you receive. Don't be duped by charlatans or led astray by heretics. In this state, he completes the thought with abounding in it with thanksgiving. The word it is referring to faith. It is in a sound and continuously established faith that we are to abound in thanksgiving. All the knowledge in the world can be heaped up and it will not naturally lead to thanksgiving. However, when one is in Christ and understands by faith that all goodness comes from him, then thanksgiving will be the natural result. That is it. God is the source of everything on this planet. Everything. And if we can just understand that every little thing that we have, whether it's, you know, a lot or if it's a little, if it came from him, then we ought to be giving thanks for it. Okay? I'll talk about that on Sunday. Life application. Knowledge is a wonderful thing to possess. And the Bible would teach us to pursue knowledge. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that it says right in uh, the book of Proverbs. Get knowledge, and in your getting, get wisdom. Or maybe it says get wisdom, and in your... I think I was right the first time. Anyway, but it is only a beginning step. Knowledge is a beginning step to wisdom, or the right application of knowledge. I have knowledge. Wisdom is applying that knowledge. I know that if I, if I put my finger in that light socket, I will get shocked. That's knowledge. Wisdom is not putting your finger in that light socket, right? There's an application that must follow through and then wisdom is displayed. And I don't care what it is, you know. Mom says that that stove is hot, don't touch it. Now you have that knowledge, 
okay? And you put your hand over it and you say, I feel it, now I have extra knowledge. But mom can't be right. You'll find out mom was right. She was trying to teach you wisdom in addition to the knowledge that you already seem to sense, okay? Apply wisdom to your knowledge, okay? It's a wonderful thing and the Bible would teach us to pursue it. When one is truly wise, they will apply their knowledge to the fear and pursuit of the Lord. That is where we need to put our, our knowledge, in the fear and the pursuit of the Lord. Okay, now I said that I was going to do this earlier to somebody. It might have been you two guys. We're going to close a little early today. We've got pizza, um, and but there's more of a reason than just pizza. We usually close 10 minutes early. We're going to close about 15, 18 minutes early. The reason why is because I am absolutely exhausted. It has been a long week, and I'm at the end of my brain. They know I couldn't even think of things, and we're trying to talk earlier, and I'm almost out. And I, I don't think that I'm going to be any help to anybody until I get some pizza in me and then go to, and get a good night's sleep. It's been a long, long week. Um, I think, I may be wrong on this, but I think I finally cut down the last two trees that needed to be cut down at the mall this morning. Wow. If so, I'm going to be so happy because I've been cutting down trees all week long. I cut two behind 7-Eleven yesterday, and I got to haul all these things out of there, and it's heavy, tiring work, and then there's a lot of other stuff. So I apologize that we're going to close early, but thanking the people that bought the pizza for us, and we'll go ahead and have a prayer. Would you close us in prayer, Jim? Lord Jesus, we uh, appreciate your word so much, and uh, yes, it's uh, it's uh, long, it's intricate, it's deep, and Lord, uh, we do thank uh, you for Charlie, who digs in uh, deeply with that, and we appreciate his saying at all times that check on what he says and make sure that he's not saying something wrong. And Lord, um, your um, <coughs> your uh, complete presence of your son through the beginning and all the way to the end of this book is uh, what keeps us coming back to hear more. And uh, we just pray that, uh, again, all the crazy stuff that people will try and pull out of there uh, or insert into there, may that just... Uh, crumble as, mm. uh, as they try and do it. Mm. It's, uh, it's frustrating, but Lord, um, we know that uh, you're a, a God of um, uh, simple truths and, um, and uh, hard um, lessons if uh, they don't sink in. And uh, we do know that uh, your, uh, your plan for us in, in whole as believers is, uh, is nothing short of miraculous. Mm. We, uh, we pray that um, that day comes soon, but we also pray that we can tell as many people about the simple gospel and path, the only path to salvation through your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his holy name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Go ahead and back this Quite up here. Wow. You never asked me to close. Oh, I know. I'm kind of surprised. <laughs>